Uh, so you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and um, as you're turning there, I just want tonight is uh, I'm really excited to preach. I love uh, speaking and stuff like that. Uh, but this is um, what I'm doing here tonight is sort of like a miracle because if you knew me when I was younger, you would know me just as um, I think Brother Jeremy Muir was saying how he just hated public speaking, and that was me. And uh, I would turn about as red as that Chinese flag over there and sweat like crazy and because uh, I was nervous. Um, so anyways, uh, but I'm just so excited because God has just really spoken to me and he laid this passage on my heart as soon as Pastor uh, told me that I would be uh, preaching as he did last week. So, um, and I'm ready this time. Last time I was real nervous and I was getting all dry and throaty. So I have uh, a nice cup of water to keep me all lathered up here. So I can go for a few hours. So we'll see what happens. Anyways, uh, Luke chapter 24. Well, we're going to start our reading in verse 13. And believe it or not, this passage, um, this passage is going to tell us how to read our Bibles. And I think that's a very important thing. You may be thinking, well, Mr. Brad, I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure I know how to read my Bible. It's, I, hopefully you do it every day or you do it as often as you can. And we're going to see that here because these two guys, this is the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they thought that they had it figured out too. They thought that they had the Bible figured out. They knew the Bible. They knew what was going to happen. But Jesus comes and tells them that they didn't. So we're going to start in verse uh, 13. And it says, And behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And just a quick note, um, it has been three days since Christ has been crucified on the cross. We find that in verse 21 later on in the passage. And these two disciples aren't part of the original 12 or at this time 11 because Judas has already committed uh, suicide after the uh, crucifixion. Because in verse 18 it says whose name was Cleopas. So obviously these two I don't know if it was a man and, a, and his wife or two guys that were just along talking, but they were talking about what had happened. They were talking about all the things that had happened with Christ on the cross and all these things because they had been following Jesus. So uh, back in verse 15, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Uh, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? So they're walking along. They're talking about uh, what had just happened in Jerusalem, Christ dying on the cross, and all the scandal that had followed that whole situation. Because Jesus was very infamous at this time. So obviously, as we're going to see a little in a, just a second, that people knew about Jesus. And people knew and heard about him dying on the cross and what the Sanhedrin had done and what the Pharisees had done to conspire to get Jesus to be crucified. So anyways, they were talking about all of that. All that kind of scandalous things that had just gone on. And Jesus comes in the midst of them. And they don't know it's Jesus. And I think that's interesting to point out. Because Jesus comes and they had been near Jesus. They knew who he was. And they don't know who it is, um, and they don't realize that it's him. And he says, basically, why are you guys? Why do you guys look so sad? What are you, what are you talking about? That's making you so sad. And I love their reaction because the the guys he say uh, verse eighteen, and the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast thou not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? <laughs> basically, he's like, 
where have you been? <laughs> where have you been for the past few days? Because something big has happened, so if you don't know what's going on, you must be a visitor or something here. So he says, where have you been? Have you been like living under a rock or something? And so it, and Jesus answers in uh, verse 19, and he said unto them, that's Jesus, what things? And so Cleopas keeps going, and he says, and they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was the prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they uh, to death and cru- have crucified him. But we trusted that had um, that it had been he which would have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were, excuse me, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them <coughs> which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but they saw him not. And what's interesting is that their view of what Jesus had done and their, what their view of what, who Jesus was was too low. They were setting their hopes too low because they had thought that Jesus was the one that... And, and what I mean by too low is that they thought that he was just a good guy, a good prophet, as they say there in verse, uh, what is it, uh, verse 20, uh, 19, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. And so they think he's a good prophet, but they don't necessarily know exactly what that means because <clears throat> they, they had set their, their hopes too low. Because the views of that day, some of the some of the Jews of that day thought that Jesus was going to be the one, because they knew the prophecies. They thought that Jesus was going to bring Israel back to might and power, and that he was going to overthrow Rome, and that the Rome was no longer going to be indominus, and that Israel was going to be back to its rightful place as the supreme nation on the earth, back to when David was at its power and it was at its zenith, really. That's what they thought that Jesus was here to do. And so when Jesus died... Obviously, these guys who had ascribed to that philosophy, they were confused. They were, obviously, they were sad because their hopes had died with Jesus. They thought that he was going to bring Israel back, but he had died. And so what Jesus goes on to explain them is they had set their hopes too low. They'd forgotten what Jesus was coming to do. And so look at verse 25. Then he said, that is Jesus, unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe that the prophets, or believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with, at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he calls them fools, because obviously they knew their Bibles, they knew, or their Old Testaments, so I should say, they knew their Old Testaments, they knew the prophecies, because they knew that Jesus was supposed to come out of Nazareth and all that stuff, but they, and they had been reading the scriptures, but they had been reading them wrongly, uh, because this is exactly what the what the prophets had predicted that Jesus was to do, and that reveals the starting of truth that Christ he reveals this startling truth, that, uh, and we, we can often forget it is that he is the focal point of the entire Bible. Jesus is the, is the point. All the pages in your Bible, all these pages that you have here tonight, they point to Jesus. They don't point to anything else, anyone else, but Christ. And the scary thing is, or, uh, no, I just jumped down my bo- notes a little bit. Well, first of all, the Bible tells one story. It points to one figure. It tells one story. It points to the figure Jesus Christ. 
And these disciples were reading their Bibles wrongly. They were reading their Old Testament wrongly, as if it was all about them, as if they were the center of the story, because they thought that they were going to restore Israel, that Israel was going to be brought back to power, and they were going to overthrow Rome, and all these sorts of um, earthly things. They were thinking too low, as I've been saying. And often that's how we can get. We can, as that saying goes, we can lose sight of the forest for the trees. And that's what they were doing because, uh, as we'll see, there was important things that Jesus had done already, but they've forgotten the big picture, the big picture of Scripture, and we can forget that at times. And just as a side note, really quick, uh, you can um, a good uh, snapshot of any culture, I think, is what the culture is reading or what I should say not reading because we're not reading our Bibles, but what we're reading. And I think a good example of that is that we have... um, a whole issue of magazines that's devoted to the objectification of women in Sports Illustrated that has nothing to do with sports, but they still release that every single year. I think that's a good telltale sign of where our country is morally and spiritually. Um, but the, the, I say that to say the three most popular genres in publishing are, at the top is romance novels, always, it seems like. Uh, second is usually kids' literature uh, because those are easy to write, and um, even see Jane Run. That's not really hard to author, I don't think. Anyways, that's second usually. And the third is usually uh, the most, the largest section in any Barnes & Noble, if they still have those. I don't know, because everything's digital now. But Barnes & Noble is self-help, you know, the uh, inspiration and vice, and that you can find the hero within yourself, and you can just, you can be awesome. You can live strong. All those types of motivational-type books And those are the most common. I think that's most telling, too, of where our nation is, is that we can just look inside ourselves and we can find the hero within us. And um, I think that that points to this, is that mankind knows that something's wrong. He won't admit it necessarily, but he knows that something's wrong. He knows that something's missing in his life. And so he needs to fix it. He needs to try and fix him. And the problem is he turns to himself. And because he's reading those books, he's reading that books that if you want to fix your life, you can just turn to yourself and you can fix yourself and that'll fix all your problems. And so they, they, but they know that something's missing and they're caught in that trap. And I'm going to use this title of this guy's book. I won't mention his name, but he, they turn to this idea that you have to have your best life now. That we can just, if you, if you can work on yourself, you can become a better you. You know, that whole idea of, of trying to fix yourself. And we, if we can only fashion a better version of us or a wealthier version of us or a, a more successful version of us, a, a, us with a better body and us with a nicer car or a bigger house or a more well-to-do family, all those things that we can achieve happiness. And that's what they put their efforts to. They put their efforts to doing that, to chasing those things, to wealth and money and prestige. And, and that's what we're all after. That's what they're after. You know, the idea, the American dream, live life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That's what they're after. And they think that that's going to satisfy them. They think that that's what's going to fill that void that they know is inside them. And they're trying to chase all these things. But the point is that that's never going to fill them. All those things that they chase, money and and wealth and pleasure and all those things, careers, it's never going to fill that void that's inside their hearts. And it's going to actually, that's going to leave them emptier than before. And I like how one author uh, worded it. He said that all these things are really nothing more than just crummy God replacements. The replacements for God. 
Because that's what they are. They make these things, these things trivial, they make them as their gods. And they make really crummy gods. They don't live up to anything. They can't, they can't satisfy them. They can't give them anything that they so desire, which is happiness and satisfaction and peace. Because that's what people are longing for. And I think it's really telling. Um, and the mo- I think the, the, one of the best examples of this is um, John D. Rockefeller. You probably know this quote. He was a hugely successful businessman. I think he was in the oil business or steel. I can't remember which one. Oil? Yeah. And he, he had that one quote. It's always, everyone always says is that one guy come up, came up to him and asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Or how much will be enough? And he said, just a little bit more. And this is a guy who had billions of dollars. He was so wealthy, but just a little bit more. And that's what I'm saying is that these, these God replacements, these things that we think are going to satisfy us here and now, will never. We'll always be wanting more. We'll always be seeking something more if that's what we're focusing on. And mankind doesn't realize that. They don't realize that that void that they're trying to fill, that, that chasm, that hole that's in their heart, it, it can only be filled by God. Anything else won't work. Anything else will be, as I've said before, it's going to be like a, a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. It's just not designed to work. It's not designed, you're not designed, you're not created by God to find your peace and your happiness and your satisfaction in anything else but Him. You're created for that. You're created to find your joy in Jesus alone. Nothing else will work. And I say all that to say that it's depressing to me that this idea has slipped into the church. That this idea that we have to fix ourselves and that we can better ourselves and that's what's going to bring us peace. It's slipped into how we read our Bibles and it's slipped how we, how we uh, approach the Bible. Because you can tell because in, our, in those Christian bookstores, what's some of the biggest category? It's like Christian self-help. Have you noticed that? It's like we can, we, can, we can help ourselves, but we can sprinkle a little Jesus on it, and it'll make it Christian, quote-unquote. And I think that's what has, has caused problems with Christian views of sanctification and Christian views of all these important doctrines. But if we think that it's about us, and it's on us, and it's the pressure's on us, then that's where we have a problem. And we've begun to read our Bibles in that same horrible manner as if it's all about us. That our Bibles are about us and that, that as if it's nothing more than a divinely sent self-help manual. <laughs> that this is the, the manual that we can get to and it will help us fix our lives. And that, the, that if it contains some sort of secret or some sort of code that we have to unlock and figure out. And then we could become a better version of us. And it's, but it's in our Bible, so obviously it's Christian, right? But I think that to treat your Bible like that, that's sort of like... You know how they have those suicide hotlines that if you're feeling really depressed, you can call this number and you can get some encouragement. That's how we go to the Bible. If you have a problem, let me just open my Bible and get some encouragement. Let me open to Psalms and get something to lift my spirits. Or go to Proverbs and we can, I can lift my spirit. And we read our Bibles as if it's about us. And that's why we get discouraged too because... You know, I've, I've, you know, I've tried to go through the Bible in a year, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you can go through, like, Genesis, and you're fine, that's history, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and you're doing pretty good, you're going pretty strong, when, when you get to Leviticus, 
Oh boy, that's tough. And then you get depressed because it's all about those rules and those laws and all those weird ordinances that, they made, that God made the Israelites do, you know, and how they had to have this certain type of wood and they had to cut the, the, the fabric in a certain way to make the temple and all this stuff. And it's, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to me? Why is this important? And that's when we get bogged down. And that's the reason. It's because we read our Bibles as if it's about us. And to prime, if you read your Bible primarily, if it's about you and what you need to do, you've lost sight of the big picture. That's when we become at that time where we lose sight of the forest for the trees. Because we miss the big picture of Scripture. And the scary thing is that we can read the Bible and we can miss the whole point of the Bible. We can read this story and we can miss the story. And so tonight I want to look at a few things and I want to show you what the Bible is about. Because just, just right off the bat, the Bible's not about you. I don't want to like shock you or burst your bubble or anything, but the Bible's not about you. It's not about you getting a better life or getting a better version of yourself. It's about Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And there's a big difference than the Bible being about you than being the Bible for you. It's a big difference. So first of all, the Bible isn't a recipe book for Christian living. You know, um, I don't really consider myself a cook in like, any stretch of the imagination. Although it will surprise you to know that that pasta dish, I, I did make that uh, the other night for the international dinner. I did. And I was really proud of myself because I followed the recipe pretty good. And we still have it today. So there was a lot of pasta. Um, that's not any measure of how good it was. It's just there was a lot of pasta. Anyways, um, but I don't really consider myself a cook in any stretch of the imagination. I can make eggs. I, mean, I can put them on the frying pan, you know. I can make bacon. You know, that's not really hard. But I don't consider myself a cook. I have a great cook in my mother-in-law. She's awesome. My mom is a fantastic Italian cook, and I just love that type of that, anyway, that cuisine. Anyways, it, when I say that I'm a cook, that means I can read a recipe. It means I know how to read. I'm, I'm literate. <laughs> um, so, but sometimes we go to the Bible as if it's this recipe book for Christian living. That if we can just follow these steps, that we can come out and we can be a Christian. We can be this model Christian if we just follow the steps that are in the Bible. But the Bible is not really, <clears throat> excuse me. The Bible's not really a recipe book that you have to just follow all these little things and then we can have this great glorified body or whatever. And that's how we think, though. The Bible is not a recipe book for Christian living. You know what it is? It's a revelation book about Jesus, the solution to our unchristian living. It's, it's a revelation book about Jesus who came to do what we could never do for ourselves. And unless we go to the Bible to see Jesus and his work for us, his deliverance for us, even our Bible reading can become sort of that, that, that sort of routine and that robotic idea that we have to improve ourselves. That we, even our Bible reading can become like that. So the Bible isn't a recipe book for Christian living. It's a revelation book about Jesus, the solution to our unchristian living. Secondly, the Bible isn't just a list of rules and regulations for us to adhere to. So often, I think it's so sad when you go up to someone and you approach them with the Bible and they say, I don't want to get saved because I don't want to have to follow all those rules. I don't want to have to follow, because, you know, people all say that, well, aren't you a Christian? Doesn't that mean you have to follow all those weird rules and stuff? And I think that's sad if what people know about Christians is that we're just about following rules. 
I think that shows more about what we're not doing and what we're not promoting and what we're not preaching is if people out in the world think that all we do is just follow rules. and that we f- It's almost as if God is some sort of totalitarian dictator and he's just giving us all these weird, harsh commands to follow. That's not. God is our Father, our Heavenly Father, and he loves us. And we follow these rules, we follow these regulations, and we do these things for God, not out of... The demand, not out of some scary thing that we have to do or God's going to judge us, but we do it because we love him. There's a big difference. And so these rules and regulations, it's, the Bible isn't just a list of rules that we have to follow. What it is, the rules are there for a purpose. They're there to show us our desperation. And, and to read the Bible as if it's a list of rules and expectations that must be kept in order to consider yourself a Christian, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because what's Jesus, what's his barometer of what Christian living is supposed to look like? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. I'll give you Jesus' barometer. Because so often people mistake this. And this is, this, believe it or not, this points us to what Jesus did. This points us to the gospel when we read this verse. Because look at the last verse of, of the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 48 of Matthew 5, He says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So if you want to try and win grace, if you want to try and live up to God's expectations, guess what? You have to be perfect. You think you can do that? (laughs) I can't. I can't be perfect. And that's the point, is that we can't. We can't live up to God's expectation. And that's why he had to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's because we can't live up to be therefore perfect. That's God's expectation. So if we want to treat this Bible as if it's a list of rules that we have to live and we have to follow and we have to adhere to, to be a Christian, we're going to burn out because we can't, we can't live up to this. We can't be perfect. Because Jesus said, you think it's just committing adultery? No, it's the way you think about that woman. You know, you think it's just getting angry at your brother? No, it's even thinking about hitting your brother. He, he just so expounded upon the law that we could never live up to God's expectations for us. And that's the point. Because it points us to grace. It points us to his gospel, what he came to do. Because Jesus came and lived the life that we never could. Jesus, our perfect example, and he's our goal to imitate. But if we, if we focus on these ideas that we have to imitate, we're going to burn out. We're going to burn out. So the rules are there for a purpose. They do have a purpose. You know, all those ordinances, they're there to show us that God is holy. Those, all those things in the, in the book of Leviticus, they're there to show the holiness of God and how he is totally separate from sin and, and all those sorts of ideas. And they're there also to point us, you know, that's the point, of, that's what Paul says all through his epistles, is that the law is there to show us that we need Jesus. It's there to show us that we can't live up to the law and that we need what Jesus did. We need deliverance. We need the gospel. That's why we have, that's why we have the law. It's, there, it's not there to save. It's not there for, so you can follow it and try and live the Christian life by that manner. It's there to show you that you can't live the Christian life. It's there to show you that you need Jesus. So the Bible, <clears throat> the Bible isn't a list of rules and regulations that we must adhere to. The Bible is a story of divine redemption and deliverance. 
to pursue God, you know, we have to let go of our performance, as it were, our Christian performance. We have to let go of what we think that we can do for God. Because what does he say in Isaiah 64? He says, even your righteousness is as filthy rags. So the idea is that when we come to God and we say, I want to pursue you, God, you have to let go of whatever you're holding on to, your egos, all those things that you think you've done good because they are as filthy rags. So the Bible isn't a list of rules. It's a story of divine redemption, of divine deliverance. Thirdly, the Bible isn't just good advice. The Bible isn't just good advice that we can go to and we can get lifted up. And, you know, that's, how, that's why you see so many people reading through Proverbs in your devotions because it's good advice. And I'm not harping on you if you're reading through Proverbs right now. But I'm just saying is that, you know, sometimes when you get depressed as you're going through Leviticus or whatever and you're trying to get through all those regulations and trying to figure out, God, I'm going through a hard time, but I don't need to be reading about how they built the temple. <laughs> I, I need something to be encouraged by, you know? <laughs> so we just drop it, and I'm, just, I'm going to read through James, or I'm going to read through Proverbs. That's not just good advice. That's not what it's there for. The Bible is not just good advice. It's good news. The good news of what Jesus came to do. Because uh, Turn back to Luke 24 real quick. Because Jesus even uh, says this at the end here, right before he uh, ascends into heaven. Luke chapter 24, and look at verse 44. And he says, and he's there with the disciples, and he says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be, must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ, or the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So this is what he's saying, is that all those things, the law of Moses, and he says it right there, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, those wisdom books, they're there concerning me. They're there to show, me, show what I came to do, which is bring deliverance to those who didn't deserve it, to bring um, salvation to those who had rejected me, to bring salvation to those who didn't deserve anything from me. And that's the point, we don't. The Bible reveals the heart of God. It reveals the heart of what Jesus came to do, which is deliverance, the gospel, which is to die on the cross to rise again and to call people to repentance and to forgive them their sins. That's what the Bible is here for, is to show us the heart of God, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that God loved us so much that he would send his only begotten son to die for us. The Bible, from beginning to the end, uh, tells of how God fulfills this plan of redemption. Through all these stories, through all these things that happen, it shows God's redeeming grace and his salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Turn over to John chapter 5 real quick. John chapter 5, and look at verse 38. And here he's talking to some Pharisees again, and he says, And have ye not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him, ye believe, him ye believe not? Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. 
So what he's saying here is you think that you have the, that the scriptures in themselves are going to save you and that you can just, what we were talking about before, that if, it's, if we just follow these rules and these regulations, that that's what's going to save us. But he's saying you've missed the point. You've lost sight of the forest for the trees. The scriptures point to me. They are they that testify of me, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come to bring the gospel to you. As one writer said, the Bible is a portrait of Jesus. It shows us who Jesus is and what he came to do. So the Bible isn't just good news, or excuse me, isn't just good advice. It's good news. And lastly, real quickly, the Bible isn't about you. The Bible isn't about you. And this point I want to I uh, focus on just a little bit is that the Bible isn't a list of heroes. Have you ever kind of... Um, kind of gone through that idea that, you know, if I can just be like David, or if I can just be like Daniel, that song, you know, um, what's that song? Be a Daniel? Isn't that song? Yeah, be a Daniel, or be a David, or or be like Gideon, or all these ideas that, that these are heroes that we need to live up to, that these heroes in the Bible are the, I, are the people that we're trying, that we should be imitating. But that's, that's false thinking. That's reading the Bible as if it's, that's again, that's setting your hopes too low. Because if you're hoping to be like David, that means you're going to, that one day you might commit adultery with someone and then murder their husband because you want to cover up your sin. Or the idea that Gideon had so much faith or whatever, but he didn't. That's why he had to test God because he didn't trust what God was do, about to do. That, you know, remember where he sets the fleece out and it gets wet and he's like, if you make it wet and all the ground dry, then I'm going to trust you. And then God does that crazy thing, and then he tests him again. Now you make the thing wet and make the, all the ground dry, and then, God, then I'll trust you. And we think, but we always go to the story of Gideon, and we think that Gideon was this mighty man of valor, that he had so much strength and faith and courage, but really he didn't. Because if, if you go to that passage, and I've, I've taught on this before, is that before, before he even did those tests with the, with the fleece and stuff, he had already been promised the victory. God said to him before in the previous chapter, you're going to destroy them, and you're not going to leave anyone alive. You're just going gonna to annihilate them. And, he's, and Gideon's like, I'm from the weakest tribe of Israel. How can I do this? And he's so, he's so he, he disbelieves. That's what uh, Troy was talking. He disbelieved God in that moment but we think we have to be like them and the point is is that the Bible is not a list of heroes to emulate it's a list of people who who were living for God but where they point us to Jesus everyone is a is as points us to Christ because um, and that's what they're there for because the plot line of the Bible is Jesus centered Jesus is the center of your entire Bible. He's the plot line of the entire Bible. And he alone is the hero. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Because these are some of my favorite verses. I could say that about every verse, but I like these verses um, in Hebrews chapter 12. And you might know which verses I'm reading, but uh, Jesus is the hero of your Bible. And that's what you need to uh, see and understand that he is the center. He is the hero of what you're reading. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing uh, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sin of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Looking unto Jesus. As the choir sang this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The Bible isn't about you. It's not about your best life now. It's not about you going to this and then you can be successful or you can get rid of all your debt or you can make your kids live right or all these ideas. It's not about living your best life now. The Bible is entirely from start to finish about Jesus, the one who came to do what we can never do for ourselves. The whole Bible is about the Christ, the God-sent rescuer, the Old Testament predicts this. Every single prophet, I can guarantee you, every single uh, book of prophecy will predict something about the Christ. And the New Testament then uh, pre- presents him. So the Old Testament predicts and the New Testament presents him. One, one um, excuse me, commentator said, Jesus claimed all the prophets as his witnesses. And he teaches us to find the highest purpose of the Old Testament in his preparation for himself, and to look for foreshadowings of his death and resurrection there. So we go to the Old Testament then to look at how Jesus is predicted and how everything works intricately, intricately as God designed it to bring Jesus about from the smallest uh, city in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrata, the smallest, most, almost insignificant city, and that's where the king of Israel comes from. And he works out everything to make that happen. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. The stories and the prophecies and the ordinances and the victories and the failures, all those things that we, that we go to and we read about are but shadows and echoes of the true and better king, the true and better sacrificed, the Savior that is yet to come. One writer says, and this, uh, listen to this, he says, We may properly learn Christ if we consider that the covenant which God made with the fathers was founded on the mediator, that is, Christ, that the sanctuary by which God manifested his presence of his grace was consecrated by his blood, that the law itself with its promises was sanctioned by the shedding of blood, that a single priest was chosen out of the whole people to appear in the presence of God in the name of all, not as an ordinary mortal, but clothed in sacred garments." And that no hope of reconciliation with God was held out to men, but through the offering of sacrifice. The point is, is that all these things, just as we were talking about the, the strict regulations on sacrifices and how they had to find certain ways to bring their sacrifice to the temple, all those things were there as foreshadowing of Christ, the true spotless lamb of, of the Old Testament. All of scripture Every page points towards Jesus. It's about the Redeemer, not us, the redeemed. He's the climax, and I just want to look at a couple of these passages. He's the climax of all these themes in the Bible. Because remember in Genesis chapter 3.15, he is that promised seed there, which is the first uh, example of the gospel where uh, the Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's Jesus. Or in Numbers chapter 21, he's the brazen serpent. Remember that story when there's fiery serpents all around, they're they're biting people and killing people, and so God commands Moses, make this brazen serpent and raise it up on a pole, and whoever looks at this serpent will live. 
That's foreshadowing what Jesus, because um, look, John chapter 3, verse 14 says, uh, this is Christ. Remember that story? Christ is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is asking, how do I get born again? And Christ says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He is that brazen serpent that we look to and we can believe in and that we can have salvation. He's the greater prophet from Deuteronomy 18 where it says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. That's talking about God. That's talking about Jesus. Or Isaiah 7:14. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Where it says, therefore the Lord shall himself give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is Christ. He's the promised heir of David and the ruler of Israel. Which is from Micah 5, 2 where it says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall become forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's about Christ. He is the ruler of Israel that was promised. Jesus is everywhere in your Bible. He's not just in the Gospels, the, the, the Gospels where we think that we can go to and find what Jesus said. Jesus is everywhere. He's on every page, on every line of Scripture. It points towards Jesus. It points to Jesus. And I want to read this. This is a lengthy passage, but I think this is so important. And that he is the true and better version of of every character in the Bible. That, that's what Christ is. This one pastor said, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, through innocently, who though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes the, his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, and helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true vine, and the true bread. The Bible is not really about you. It's about him. And I could give you Bible references for all those things that I just said, all those ideas that he's the true and better Adam and Abel, and all those stories. The, the point is the Bible is not about you. The Bible points to Jesus. It points to Christ. The Old Testament shows the, the sheer necessity of Christ, of our atoning Redeemer, who from, uh, from um, <clears throat> excuse me, of an atoning Redeemer from the sin which everywhere it reveals. Because everywhere in the Old Testament you can find sin, you can find deprivation, you can find violence and all sorts of harsh realities and stories. And it shows us just why we need someone like Christ. And through its promises and, and through the symbols of the, of the temple and the sacrifices, we see pictures of salvation. We see pictures of Christ. So consequently, every single theme then of every sermon should be Jesus, should circle back to what Christ has done for us. I, I like 
what Spurgeon says on this. And I just like quoting Spurgeon sometimes because he just said things that just make you kind of chuckle. And this is one of them. This is one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon. He says, When I cease to preach salvation by Jesus, put me into a lunatic asylum, for you may be sure that my mind is gone. He knew the importance of preaching Christ. Or this, I like... uh, This quote, and this is especially true for uh, us preacher boys. He says, the motto of all true servants must, of servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. He is the point of every sermon. He should be the theme of every discourse of this Bible. He is the big picture of Scripture. You know, we talked about loose side of the forest for the trees. What's the forest then? The forest is that God so loved you even when you were enemies, Romans 5, 8. Even when you despised him and rejected him and you, and you scorned on him and you spit on him, he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you and take away your sins. That's the truest display of love in the whole world. And that's what this Bible points to. It points to the deliverance that Jesus gave us. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The Bible is a story of grace. It's not, it's not about you. It's not about getting a better life now. It's about the hope you have of a better life with Christ later on. It's about the, the, the salvation that Jesus secured for you. It's a story of grace, an intricate retelling of God's perfect redemption plan and his persevering love for his people. And that includes you and me. I want to leave you tonight with, with this. This comes from, because this, this, this perfectly shows us what the Bible is about. This comes from a, a, kill, a, a kid's book. It's an illustrated Bible. And it comes from the preface. But I think this so perfectly tells us what the Bible is really about that we can learn from it, even though it's from a little kid's book. And it says, the author says, Now some of you think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules on it, and they show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. But the Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. The story of how God loves his his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of it, there is Jesus. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. That's what Christ is. That's what your Bible points you to. That missing piece in your life that we were talking about earlier, that missing void, that can only be filled by Christ. So if you're trying to find it in anything else but Jesus, you're going to be empty, and you're going to be miserable, and you're going to be dissatisfied. The missing piece is Jesus. He's the point of your whole Bible. And I pray that we, would, that we would go to the Bible with the lens of Christ, that we'd see Jesus on every page, because that's what's going to bring hope, and that's what's going to bring the things that we long for. Jesus has promised that in his word, that he will give us every single thing that we need to live for him.
The Bible is about Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening as we close.